Thank you for tuning in to the Excellence Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Sharon Hulse, president of ERG Executive Search, a nationwide executive search firm headquartered in Appleton, Wisconsin. Today's distinguished guest is a globally recognized top 30 motivational speaker, a best-selling author, and a Titan 100 CEO. With a resume spanning the military, U.S. government, education, nonprofit, and international business sectors, he has distilled his multifaceted experiences into 50, that's five zero, best-selling books on leadership and personal development. A fervent advocate for civility, diversity, inclusion, respect, and fairness, he is helping to shape the future of business culture around the globe. Get ready to unlock your genius potential with the president of Moreland Training and Associates and CEO of Genius Speaking Academy, Dr. Will Moreland. Welcome so much, Dr. Will. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. And before we even get started, I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing in this platform that you've created for individuals like me just to share our information and some of our insights. So thank you so much for having me. Well, I have to tell you, and I, we talked about this a little bit before we started, I'm so excited for today's podcast because, you know, you and I have not met, but as I read your story, being a fellow Titan, it just, it leapt off the page of this is an individual that not only do I have to get to know, but I have to let the world get to know you as well. So I'd like to start with um, your astonishing career. I mean, you've had the most amazing career, you're a military veteran, global keynote speaker, best-selling author, and a business leader. So that's just to name a few things. There's lots more that goes behind that. Tell our listeners more about your fascinating career, your story, the journey. How did you become America's number one leadership life trainer? Yeah, so uh, it's funny. Every time I do these interviews and I get a little bit older, I tell people the story gets a little <laughs> bit longer. So I, I'll, I'll try to codify it. But I was born and raised in a little city called Compton, California. I don't know if uh, any of your listeners are familiar with Compton, but when I was uh, raised in Compton, Compton was uh, said to be literally the worst city in America. And so I tell people, for me, it was a tale of two cities. Uh, inside my home, I was raised by my grandmother and my, my mom, and I got structure, I got love, um, I got developed in my faith. But when I would leave the house, I was surrounded by um, a very impressionable community. So unfortunately, I, I found myself on the, the wrong side uh, of the law, getting in trouble uh, very early on in life. And then at the age of 18, I had a very transformational moment. Um, I was in a California uh, courtroom and the judge was looking at me and I had just turned 18. And he said to me, he said, Mr. Moreland, you're headed nowhere fast. And he says, if I sentence you today, this will stay with you for the rest of your life. And I don't want to do that. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow you to leave my courtroom today. And I want you to return in two weeks. And I want you to tell me what you're going to do with your life and give me a reason not to send you to one of our nice facilities, AKA jail. And so, Sharon, to be honest with you, I left that courtroom not knowing what I was going to do in my mind. I said, you know what? I don't have anything to tell him. 
So this is just going to be a two week vacation because I'm getting ready to get sent to jail. So for in my mind, I'm just going to party for two weeks and tell everybody goodbye. And I'll see you when I see you. But as faith would have it three days before I was to, to return to the court, a gentleman by the name of Corey Oliver walked up to me as I was walking in the mall and Corey asked me this defining question that literally changed my life. He asked me, have you ever thought about going into the military? And I looked at Corey, who was an army recruiter, and I knew at that moment, I didn't understand the fullness of it, but I knew, I said, man, if I tell the judge I'm going to the army, he would probably go for that. And so I looked at Corey and I said, sure, man, let's go. Now, Corey, no. Corey was stunned because Corey eventually shared with me that he had walked up and down that mall for two years and never put anybody into the military because guys in my neighborhood, we didn't go to the military. And so I remember him calling back to his station commander saying, hey, we got somebody. And his station commander saying, well, bring them down here. Get them in here. Right. It was like they had just caught a big fish. Right. So uh, I go with Corey. We go down to the recruiting station. I do sign the papers to join the military. I go back to court. I tell the judge I'm going to go to the military. He looks at Corey, says, is this true? Corey says, it is true. He signed up already. He's leaving in two months. He then tells Corey, he says, Corey, I'm putting his life in your hands. Make sure he gets on that plane to go to basic training. Corey said, I got you, sir. I'll make sure he gets on that plane. And this began my journey because when I joined the military, this was now my opportunity to get what I call um, direction, to get uh, mentors that was very uh, helpful for me. And when I joined the military and when I got to um, Fort Knox, where I did my basic training, for the first 18 years of my life, I didn't travel more than 20 miles outside of Compton, California. So I was very sheltered. And so this was my first time leaving California, my first time getting on an airplane, my first time interacting with other people that was from around the United States. So it was, I just had all these transformational changes going on at once. And then the army got really funny and they sent me all the way to Germany. So here I go, 18 years, not going more than 20 miles outside of my home to within four months, I went to Kentucky, I went to Maryland, and now I'm in a whole nother country. And I didn't remember, I didn't know anything about Germany. I remember one time uh, my cartoons got interrupted with President Reagan saying, bring that wall down. That's the only thing I knew about Germany. But as it would have it, it was the best decision, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And when I got there, I got another mentor and he asked me the second pivotal question that changed my life. He asked me, Will, where do you see yourself in five years? And nobody had ever asked me that question because sharing where I grew up, everybody told me that either by the age of 18, I would be in jail or I would be dead. So when it talked about thinking about the future, we didn't think about the future that much. And so nobody had ever asked me, where do you see yourself? And so when he asked me that, 
I remember saying Sergeant Major, his name was Sergeant Major Babs. I said, Sergeant Major, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Just like the judge, he sent me home and he says, over this weekend, I want you to think about it. And I want you to come back here on Monday and tell me, where do you see yourself in five years? I went home, thought about it. I came back on Monday and I said to him, I said, well, I know two things. Number one, I want to be the best soldier I can be. And I want to get into college. I want to get into college. And he says, I can help you with that. I can help you with that. He gets me and helps me enroll in college. One of the first classes I take in college is a speech, um, a communications course. I take this course and the professor comes to me and he says, man, you're a natural at this. Another lady by the name of Miss Copeland, she comes to me and she says, oh, my God, I'm always nervous and everybody else is always nervous. But you just do this. This is you're just so natural. And she gives me this book. She hands me this book. And the name of the book was Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. Great by book. Napoleon Hill. And I began to read this book. I hadn't read many books up until that point, but I read this book. And when I read this book, something clicked on the inside of me that, wait a minute, I was in control of my life, that I had the power of choice, that I had the power of time, I had the power of habit. And I started reading this and I got so inspired by the idea that now I realized that my past wasn't a prison that my past was just a platform to get me into my purpose. And so I started looking at my past totally different, that it that it, it wasn't this boulder that was going to keep me knocked down, but literally it was a stepping stone to what I was going to end up doing for the rest of my life. And so I got so enamored in this book that I just wanted to tell everybody about the possibility of changing your life. Like you're not stuck. Like you literally can become and do whatever you want to do in life. And so that's what started my personal development journey. And I've been on this journey now for the last 25 years. I've been so blessed to now travel literally all around the world, 50 plus countries and, and meet millions of people. Um, uh, on this on this planet and uh i just wake up every single morning and uh i'm just so fortunate that i get to do what i love well and the thing that i loved about your story is you know there's something about you that people saw right you had this i mean you know the judge the the army recruiter um people who who in college i mean and and that's the thing that you know, I think so many people get down on themselves and those mentors and those people that come into your life, if you just listen, that divine intervention, it's just amazing how it can transform a life that maybe feels like it's not going in the right direction and turn it around into what you've made into this magnanimous, amazing ability to share your story with people across the globe. It, that's just been amazing. So, and I love the fact that the military played such a big role in it. You had talked a lot in in several things that I read about how the military transforms your life. And I think that's true for a lot of young men and women that maybe are a little misdirected and and, um, not sure what they want their future to look like, that the military can be transformational. 
It, it definitely can. I, I recommend, you know, I, I go into uh, high schools all across the country and, and when young kids come up to me and they're kind of uncertain about what they want to do and what their future looks like, I tell them, you know, investing two to three years in the military will prove to be one of the best choices that they've ever made for the discipline, the direction that it provides, the opportunity. Um, you can come and have a designation for the rest of your life as a as a military veteran that's going to go with you for the rest of your life. And you'll, you'll, you, you would have done something that you will be proud of, you know, and people ask me, are you still a component of that? Do you still believe that my daughter is serving in the United States Navy right now? And so if I didn't believe uh, in the military, um, I wouldn't allow her to go, but that's how much my my wife and I and uh, our family we believe that uh, the military is essential. It's a very essential uh, part of developing and growing up. So the other thing that you know sort of leapt off the page was the fifty books. I mean, yeah. seriously, I wrote one, and I'm thinking, okay, it took me five years to write one. That's 250 years. I'm pretty sure that that's not going to happen. How in the world did you write? 50 books. And the books that I, I love the subject of leadership, personal development. And so how did you get 50 books written for one thing? And then the second question is, is there a particular book that our listeners could start with that is one of your favorites or really would be sort of that starting point to help them on their personal journey? Wow. My books are like kids. Now you're asking me to pick my favorite kid, right? <laughs> now but um, to, you know, for me, I, I don't know where it came from initially, but I just got a passion about um, writing and, and, and sharing information. I was just, once again, once I read Think and Grow Rich and how it transformed my life, I realized that this is the power of books. This is the power of communication. And so I just started writing in any time I felt that I had information on a subject that I could help people with. Um, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've observed. Here's what has helped me. Here's some uh, tips. Here's some principles that have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. And so I always tell people, whether it's with my writing or my speaking, I'm not in the business of trying to impress people. So it really doesn't take me long to write a book because I'm not trying to write the perfect book. I'm not trying to write an impressive book. I'm just trying to write a book that I think will help people. And so we've used in our company, we've used a strategy. Our books are not very big, you know, anywhere between 75 to 100 uh, pages. So they're real quick reads because what I want you to do is to consume the information. But more importantly, I want you to be able to implement um, the information that you're, you're reading. And so for me, I have this concept, the, the apple. And, um, when you think about the apple, for most people, when they look at an apple, um, all they see is an apple, but it's so much more when you tap into it and get to the core. It's not just an apple, it's apple juice, it's apple sauce, it's apple fitter, it's apple pie. So for me, my writing has become my apple. And so from that, I just flow. So if you ask me to make lemon meringue pie, I couldn't do that. But if you want something that deals with Apple, I can do that. So when it comes to leadership and it comes to personal development, I can do that. So I would say, I would suggest to everybody, uh, the book that really kind of launched me uh, into personal development and, and, and put me on the radar is a book called Genius Potential. And this is where I share a little bit about my story of coming from Compton, California. and. Um, 
this whole idea about genius potential. I thoroughly believe that every single one of us have genius on the inside of us. Now, unfortunately, um, we live in a society where we kind of only think that those that uh, like Aristotle or Socrates or Mozart or uh, people that are uh, skilled at playing music or painting or um, Einstein in, in mathematics and Sir Isaac Newton in the sciences. We think of those individuals, Steve Jobs, we think of those individuals as geniuses. But through my research, what I found out was that simply genius is a natural ability. And each of us have a natural ability. For some of us, it's uh, a natural ability to organize. For some of us, it's humor. For other people, it's organization. That's a genius. But because of our school system, we focus on certain areas. So like for me growing up, there wasn't a speech class. So there wasn't anything for me to get really excited about because my passion was speaking. As a matter of fact, they told my mom that I spoke too much. Like, uh, He's a great kid, but he speaks too much. They just didn't know I was practicing what I was to become. If I would have played sports, if I would have been an actor, if I would have been a musician, they would have said, oh, he's a boy genius. Look at look at how mm -hmm. he plays the piano. Look at how he plays the harp. Look at how he plays the saxophone. I would have got celebrated. But because my genius, you know, if you're a comedian, you're not going to get to display your genius until you're way out of school because they're going to call you a class clown. They're going to say you're disrupting. And so look at all the comedians that we have. And when you listen to their stories, it was it wasn't until I got out of school. Everybody said that, you know, I wasn't interested in school. I was a very poor kid. It wasn't that you're poor educationally. You just wasn't motivated. You just wasn't inspired by the subjects and the topics that were they were teaching in school. And so the same thing happened for me. So when we look at genius potential, I inspire people to realize that each of us, each of us have a genius potential. And if you kind of look throughout your life, you probably see examples of it and sprinkles of it. I remember my mom telling me back when I was a little kid, when we would come home from church, she would say, you would always mimic the preachers. You would stand out in the backyard and you would act like you had a microphone in your hand and you would mimic the preachers. And so I've been doing this, you know, literally my whole life. So Genius Potential is the book that I would suggest that everybody starts with. That's a great suggestion. I, you know, we're so in alignment. I've often said too, that, you know, people hire people because of their resume, but if people work to their natural gifts, they, it doesn't matter if they don't have the background, they, they will naturally be good at it and love it because it is who they are on the inside. So I 100% agree with what you're saying. So I have to ask about the leadership training. I mean, you've worked mm -hmm. with a lot of CEOs, a lot of major organizations, Intel, Boeing, MLB, Edward Jones, NASCAR, just to name a few, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the organizational pain points that you've observed and how do you find that, um, what do you think is prevalent in empowering companies to, you know, help people to find their inner genius and solve organizational issues through the right people? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when, when I think about the work that we've done with organizations, one of the, the key things is is getting employee buy-in. That's one of the mm -hmm. big things. So the whoever the founder is, the CEO is, they always have the the big 
picture. They have the vision. They have the mission. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to accomplish. But for most employees, they don't see themselves in that vision. They don't see themselves in that mission. And so what happens is they default to a mentality that says, well, that's not what you paid me for. This is what you paid me for. And this is what I'm going to do. They have more of an attitude of I start at eight o'clock. That's when I start. I clock out at five. That's it. And so what we do in organizations, the work that we do is we create uh, cultures of civility. And in creating cultures of civility, we help employees get buy-in and we help leaders communicate um, in, in helping their employees. We, we call the concept going from employee to partner. So we want all the employees to see themselves as partners, not just, oh, we're making the C-suite rich and it doesn't benefit us. And a lot of times for employees, they do disconnect. They do disconnect that this job is a big part of your life, not just because you go here 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but pretty much everything else you do in your life is connected to this job. And one of the exercises I do when I go in is I ask employees, I say, let me ask you something. How many of you have a car and the hands go up? And how many of you put gas in that car? The hands go up. Let me ask you, the money that you use to put the gas in that car, where does that money come from? Oh, it comes from my job. Okay, good. How many of you in here either pay rent or pay mortgage? Hands go up. Let me ask you, the money that you use to pay that rent or pay that mortgage, where does that money come from? Oh, it comes from this job. Okay, so your transportation, okay, your housing. Okay, how many of you eat every day? Eat every day. Well, the money you use to buy groceries, where did that come from? And so I get them to see that, wait a minute, it's imperative that this job does well, that this company does well, because if this company went belly up, my life would be impacted. And it's the light bulb sharing goes off because they haven't connected that the rest of their life is connected to this job. And so if my life is connected to this job, what should be my attitude? And so we help marry mission and attitude together. So buy-in is one. And, and then the, the other, um, that, that I see, um, is the communication, right? Between leaders and employees and effective communication. What I've observed is most leaders, they became leaders because they were good at a particular skill. So the salesperson was the best salesperson. So we're going to promote him or her and make them be the manager over the sales team. But they had no people skills. Right. They have no communication skills. They were good at what they did. They knew why they were motivated. They knew why uh, they were waking up early. They knew why they were working late. They knew why they were hitting their numbers. But then when it comes time to motivate Will to do the same thing, our motivations aren't the same. And so they would see rejection from their teams. And then they're now frustrated because they used to be the superstar. They were the rock star, but now they're the failing manager. So we go in and, and, and we help the managers uh, with their people skills and their communication skills. And we help them uh, learn how to connect with their employees on a more personal basis. Yeah. That's and and everything you said is so true that, um, yeah, amazing work. So I, I want to make sure that we take time to talk about the other side of Dr. Will, and that is yeah. you are an ambassador of the World Civility, 
Um, and for the last few decade, decades, you and your team have made it your mission to share the philosophy of leading with civility. So I want you to speak more about your mantra as leaders. Um, we're in the business of people. Specifically, how does that mantra translate into actionable strategies for improving corporate culture, driving engagement, um, and ultimately boosting performance, which is what I think all as leaders we're all searching for. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So once again, I've been fortunate. My career started off in the military and being in the military, it enabled me to meet people from all different diverse backgrounds. I've had the opportunity to once again travel to 50 plus countries. I've lived in five different countries. And so it's given me a, a very unique perspective on humanity. And perspective is so powerful because if you have the improper perspective, then you'll look at people totally um, from screwed eyes. And so I, I believe personally that 98, 98% of our world population, out of those 8 billion people, I believe 98% of humanity are really good people, are really, really good people. And there's about 2, 2% that are on some other mission, right? right? Unfortunately, those are the people that usually get highlighted and that then, that then sours how we look at humanity. And so what I had to learn and what has been very beneficial for me is number one, that whenever I'm interacting with someone, I'm interacting with them and they're not a representation of the whole. And so if I'm dealing with Sharon, I'm dealing with Sharon. And if Sharon does something I dislike, it's not all women. It was just Sharon did it. Mm -hmm. Sharon did something I didn't like. It's not all women. And so we have to start uh, with not having this inclusive idea of this is all this or these people are all this or they're all like this. Um, because in the workplace, we get tied up with an us against them mentality. Usually um, it's the big bosses. The big bosses are making us stay late. The big bosses are making us do this, right? And so when you you look at this whole idea of civility, what we do in going into corporations is we create what we call uh, cultures of civility. And the whole idea around that is tied into leading with civility is where we get number one leaders to start looking at their employees as individuals and looking at them with the eyes of humanity. So for instance, as an example, as we see leader, leadership and the way we lead shift, you remember 20, 30 years ago, it was just all authoritative. Do mm -hmm. what I say, don't ask right. me any questions, right? Yeah, our, um, our fathers, I don't yeah. care. Right, I don't care mm -hmm. if you have kids, I don't care if you're a father, I don't care if you either the job or else, right? So we've thankfully seen a big shift in the workplace where um, leaders are now uh, being more what we call gentle, but I, I don't think that it was coming from a genuine place. They realized that they had to shift. They realized that that authoritative leadership wasn't going to work anymore. But I don't think they were trained as it related to not just doing it because that's not working anymore, but really tapping into if I really find out who Sharon is and I see her beyond, oh, that's Sharon, the HR person. But Sharon's probably a mom. She's probably a wife. 
She probably likes to play the ukulele. She probably likes to go to concerts on the weekend, right? If I can tap into her humanity side, beyond what we've hired you to do with this task, what else do you like to do? Because now as a leader, oh, maybe there may be something else I can have you do in the office that goes beyond that skill set. Maybe outside of work, you are an event planner. Well, we have events here, Sharon. So if we want to celebrate everybody's birthday here, Sharon, I'm going to put you in charge of that. Now, Sharon is coming to work and she has a whole different perspective about the workplace now. It's not just about the HR work that she has to do. She's now excited because she can show a different expression of herself. And so we've been going into companies now and we've been sharing this philosophy with them, getting to know your employees on a personal level because that was unheard of, right? I, you know, I remember in the, we, in the military, we would call it a fraternization, right? You, you're not supposed to, um, uh, uh, communicate with those that are not the same rank as you. But we found that's not the most effective. There can still be respect there. There can still be a degree of honor there in positions. And, um, you can still talk to your employees and have a personal relationship with, with you and they can still get the job done. So that's what we've been doing over the, the, the last 20 years. And we've seen great strides and our clients, um, report back to us that the morale is up or that, that the engagement is up and back to your point of, productivity because at the end of the mm, day great. there has to be a duality there right we got to keep making money we got to keep earning money so we just can't have kumbaya we still got to earn money yeah. and so we've shown them that yep you can be a very profitable company and going back to what i said earlier when we get to the employees to see themselves not just as employees but as partners they want the company to do better. And so now they're not going to sit around and be non-productive. They're going to even be more productive because we've been able to make the connection that your livelihood is connected to this. And the better the company does, the better you will do in the long run as well. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, that's wonderful. And, and I agree as we look at cultures that are in all these organizations, that is one of the defining moments is when an employer understands that getting to know your people on a personal level, not just who they are as workers, but to really get to know what's important to them makes such a difference. So you've been quite the award winner lately. <laughs> so you won uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Living the Dream Award. That sounded amazing. And of course, you have won the Titan 100 Award not once, but twice pretty amazing as well. So I, I'm going to talk about the Titan Award because obviously um, part of what I love about the Titan community is is getting to know all these dynamic people who have won the Titan Award. So what did it mean to you to be recognized as a Titan and obviously also one of the most influential CEOs in the Arizona market? You know, um, and I, I know we, we all say this and it sounds cliche and we say things like, you know, we don't do it for the awards and we don't do it for anything like that. But to be completely honest with you, um, number one, uh, it was complete, it was a complete, uh, shock initially learning that, um, I had been awarded, uh, one of the top 100 Titans here in the Arizona, um, area. Uh, but personally, it was just a testament to me of the commitment I've made to myself to be the best version of myself, regardless if it gets recognized or not. But it does feel good 
um, when it is recognized because it, it just means other people are seeing the impact that um, you're, you're making. And then it's a testament to um, our team. I pride myself in surrounding myself with some really brilliant people and allowing them to do their job. And, um, and, and I, I share with them, I know that um, I'm the face of the company, I'm the face of the organization. I realize that um, they call me for the awards, but I always share with my team that this is always a team award. This is an us award and not a me award because I wouldn't be able to do what I do at a high level without them. And um, and then I found work that I truly love and I can truly make a difference. And so I use the word work, but it's not really, you know, it's not really work. I really truly wake up every single morning with a, a heart of gratitude that um, I get to work with some amazing individuals, some amazing corporations that are truly committed to making their cultures better, making their environments for their employees better, and uh, making the world in itself uh, a, a better place. And so um, I, you know, and then to, you know, win it and be named for a second, a second year, um, that I was, I was good with one year and I was, it was, I was just blown away that um, our work, it just, it, it just really speaks for the, the type of work that our team does and the, the hard work um, that we put in. Well, and it's, it's obvious. I mean, your passion just oozes out of your pores, which is part of why I love your whole story. And, and no doubt you were deserving the first time and even more deserving the second time. So I have to ask, I, I want to make sure that I get this in before our time runs yeah. out. And that is your work on diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, strategies that you talk to companies. It's inter It's been interesting talking to, quite frankly, a lot of the Titan CEOs on some of the challenges they're having today with DEI and B, right? Mm -hmm. and, and starting the programs and then almost the challenge of getting it started and then it creating somewhat even a more challenging work environment and not just opening minds into, you know, it isn't just about race or, you know, different religions or any of that. It's really about diversity of thought and all of that. So I wanted to get your take on DEI, B, belonging, and and the work you're doing with that and and how to help CEOs and leaders of companies to really think about diversity in a really positive way? Yes. Yeah, so um, great question. Another great question. Um, you're right. So we've been working with uh, companies and organizations and they have found it very, very difficult um, to implement um, DEI programs, DEIB programs, and then to keep the momentum going because it's very touchy-feely. And the reason why it's touchy-feely is because we've had years and years of non-communication, right? Everybody has kind of stayed in their little box. And what this has created is assumptions, right? Assumptions. We're always assuming, uh, as I said earlier, uh, grouping everybody together. So all the women think like this and all the men are going to think like this and all the Asians are going to think like this and all the Latinos are going to think like this and the blacks and the whites. And um, because I've had the opportunity to travel so much, I, I really understand that at the core of humanity, we're all the same. The problem is we just don't have conversations. And so we created 
where we call, um, where we go into organizations and we create environments where we do an open forum, where we create these safe spaces where this is the time where you get to ask any and everything. We're gonna take our emotions off and we're not going to walk out of here assuming. And so if you wanna know something, this is gonna be a safe place for you to ask that question. Because once again, if I don't ask the question, I just walk away assuming, and my assumption could be wrong. And so it starts from when we go in, we start with we start with the leaders and we ask them what is their idea of DEIB and what's their philosophy. And to your point, um, it's it goes beyond race. It's not, you know, you can have all black people, all white people, all Latino, and they're all going to be different. They're mm -hmm. all going to yeah. be different. My experience, you know, me and my wife, we're both from California. We grew up 20 minutes apart from each other. And we could be the most different people on this planet. Like she had a whole different, she tells me all the time, if I would have met you back in California, we wouldn't have gotten married. Right. right. And so we're totally, totally um, different. And that's diversity. And I, I share with CEOs, diversity is not something you need. Diversity is something you want. You want diversity of thought. You want diversity of ideas. You want diversity of perspectives. You want, if you think your, um, if you think your company has been amazing up until this point with a lack of diversity per se, wait till you infuse genuine diversity. But here's been the trick, Sharon. I go in and I let them know your company's already diverse. Your company's already diverse. Why is it diverse? because every individual is different. So now the next step is not so much focusing on creating a diverse company, your company's already diverse. And I don't care if your company's all black, all Latino, all Asian, they're not all the same. And so the fact that I say, oh, I have a, a black company, those thoughts are going to all be different. Once again, like I said, you know, my operations manager comes from Iowa, comes from Iowa. Right. That's a total different way of thinking. Right. Um, once again, my wife, who was raised in California with me, but she comes from a, a Latin background. So she was raised from her Latin side. Right. So I'll give you a quick story on that. When we get married, we get married. Um, it's get married November the 7th. So the next thing coming up is Thanksgiving. In my mind, she tells me, Hey, I'm going to cook Thanksgiving dinner for us. Okay. No problem. Didn't even ask her. Cause I know what Thanksgiving dinner is. It's turkey. It's stuffing. It's yams. It's greens. It's boom, boom, boom. Right. So I didn't even think about it. Well, come Thanksgiving. What? Why do we have tortillas? Why do we have rice? Why do we have beans? Why do we have Cornish hens? This is not Thanksgiving dinner. She's like, what are you talking about? This is what we had every year for Thanksgiving dinner. Wait a minute. And so we had to have conversations now. It wasn't wrong. It was just different. And so I had to embrace the difference. And so that's what we're not doing in the workplace. We're not asking questions. And because we're not asking questions, we're just assuming. And um, so we go into organizations and we make it easier to have these these conversations. And it's amazing when you, you know, just once again, as an example, I'll, I'll ask, how many of you in here are fans of country, uh, country music? And you see the diversity of hands. And so I ask, you know, Sharon, 
did you know Will like country? And she said, I would have never imagined because I assumed because Will is from Compton, he just must like that hip hop. He just must like that rap, right? Yeah. And so because we don't ask the questions, we didn't even know we had a connection there. And if we don't think we have a connection, then we always think we're separated. And so those are the types of examples that we go in and we use and we help people um, discover, you know, the person next to you may be your best friend, but you just need to talk to them. So I'm just curious, because um, you know, I always like to have some key takeaways, right? So three non-negotiables that you have to have present to create a strong culture. What would you say those are? Yeah. So if you if you wanted to have culture, you, you have to have buy-in, you have to have communication, and you have to have a strong vision. People have to see themselves in the future. Um, this goes to retention, right? If people don't see themselves as a part of the future of your organization, then they're not going to hang around for a long time. And so uh, through buy-in, the way the way you know, CEOs can get buy-in. It starts with having a compelling vision. You got to have a compelling vision and you have to be able to communicate in such a way where people see themselves, where people see themselves. Not It's not just about the company making their targets. Oh, we went up another 20% in sales. Oh, we expanded into a new market. That does nothing for uh, the employee. They don't get excited about that. They don't get excited about that, right? And so if you focus on uh, the buy-in, you focus on the vision and you focus on consistent communication, then you'll be creating a, a significant culture in your organization. And how about high performance? I mean, I know you work across a, a number of industries. You're not just segmented into one industry, obviously, by all the, the uh, keynote speeches that you've done, over 2,000 organizations. So talk to me about the high performance. What strategy do you see that regardless of industry universally helps an organization to build high performance? Yeah. So I, I love, I love talking to organizations about um, high performance coming to them, coming from the military. And I do a lot of work with uh, professional sports teams. And so we talk about high performance a lot and it goes back to um, a compelling, a compelling vision, right? Um, when I'm talking to organizations, it's not about getting everybody to like each other and have kumbaya moments, but we have to have a uniformity of the vision. What is the vision? So when I'm talking to sports teams, when I'm talking to high performing teams, we got to get unison on the vision. What is everybody's goal? So we always call it the championship. So we have to determine for our department, for our organization, what's the championship? What's the championship? So once we define the championship, so for our unit, it may be in the warehouse, safety may be the championship. We want a hundred days without any accidents. That would be the championship for us. So once we define the championship, now we have to identify everybody's part because everybody can't play and do the same thing. So who's going to be the quarterback? Who's going to be the running back? Who's going to be the wide receiver? And then we're going to hold each other accountable. So once we figure out who is who, we got the clarity, we know what the championship is, then we identify our roles. Now we have identified our roles. The third thing that makes it work is accountability. I'm going to hold you to what you said you were going to do for the team. I'm going to hold you accountable for your part. 
And once we have everybody functioning like that, everybody knows what the championship is. Everybody knows what their assignment is. And we now have a collective accountability. You're going to have a high performing team. And once again, it's not about me liking you. When I come and tell you, hey, Sharon, you're messing up. It's not about me liking you or not liking you. It's about me holding you accountable to what we all agreed was going to be our championship. Well, and I love the whole culture with accountability, which I think, you know, everybody talks about servant leadership, but it's, it's incredibly difficult to build a strong culture, but yet hold people accountable as a servant leader. And uh, you obviously, Dr. Will, are one. So I am grateful to, to spend some time and get to know you better. I have to ask, we have a lot of young listeners. So yeah. one piece of advice that you would give uh, someone who you know, maybe is in, is in a place where they're searching or just wants to make their career as magnanimous as yours has been, what, what piece of advice would you give that listener? You know, um, first thing I would tell you is enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. I know you don't, I know you don't think that you have a lot of time and it has to be done today, but I would tell any young person, you're, you're, you're 30 and, and under, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey and use time. Use time to your advantage. So I tell everybody, you know, when I look at my career, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. And even for myself, I give myself time. It doesn't have to be done next year. It doesn't have to be done two years from now. I like to think in decades. So if you're 30 years are younger, ask yourself, what do I want life to look like when I'm 60? What do I want life to look like when I'm 60? So if you're 20 right now, you're 25, that gives you 40 years. That gives you 40 years to accomplish all the great things you want to accomplish because so many times we want it yesterday. But once you give yourself time and you say, you know what? 10 years from now, I want to be here in life. And so I break that down. I have four quarters every year. So now I have 40 quarters to make this happen. So every 90 days, what am I doing to help me pursue this goal? What am I doing for my 10 year in the future self? But I have 40 quarters. And so I don't have to have it all done tomorrow. So every 90 days, I do an assessment. I made some progress. Oh, I didn't make progress. I need to make some modifications. I need to change some things so I can get back on track the next quarter. And so when I give myself the power of time to just enjoy the journey, I promise you that you're listening to me. You're not going to miss out. You're going to have enough time to enjoy everything that you want to enjoy, but you don't want to. That was one of the major mistakes that I made. I was fast paced. I remember I was traveling and all I would see was the airplane. Back then we had taxis. So it was the taxi, the conference center, back to the hotel, back in the taxi, back on the plane. And somebody would say, how was Italy? I was like, I don't know. I didn't see anything. And so I've learned in my career, like even now when I travel, I'll add a day. I'll add a day either before or after. So I could go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So I can go to the, the Louvre. So I can go and look at a museum because I want to enjoy the journey. And so that would be the key advice that I would give anybody listening to us. Just enjoy the journey. Give yourself some time. And then the last thing, 
find some passionate work, find work that you're passionate about. Don't think about the money and things like that. Just find work that you're passionate about. Find work that you're passionate about. If you do those three things, enjoy the journey, give yourself some time and find passionate work, you'll, you'll wake up every morning with a smile on your face. Well, that's fabulous advice. And I'll tell you what, being on the uh, close side of that back number, uh, the journey goes fast. Yeah. <laughs> so enjoying the journey is great advice. So uh, this has been delightful. Dr. Mm-hmm. Will, I have loved getting to know you better. Um, how do people find you? How do how do uh, people get in touch with you if they would like to, to spend some time and get to know you better, even beyond what we've had today? Yeah, I would love that. I would love to connect with you. I would love to hear about your genius potential and what you're doing to impact the world. And you can do that on all social media platforms. Uh, go to the handle at Dr. Will Speaks, D-R-W-I-L-L-S-P-E-A-K-S, Dr. Will Speaks. That's my handle across all social media. Uh, if you want to talk uh, business stuff, corporate stuff, go to our website, morelandtraining.com, morelandtraining, M-O-R-E-L-A-N-D training.com and you can see all the work we're doing with organizations schools and associations around the country well i just have to say thank you for your time and thank you for all the wonderful things that you are doing around the globe um it it has been delightful like i said to get to know you and i look forward to and i do come to to arizona um somewhat frequently. So next time I'll buy you dinner next time I'm down there. Please, please reach out. I would love to connect with you in person. Please do. That would be great. Thank you again so much for your time. Take care.